previously on Areas of Agreement. Depending on how you define the issue, depending on how you bring people together, there's an opportunity for movement, action, progress on any issue. And we allow people to form groups within our program with other people who want to work on the same issue. Being able to meet people from across the country that come from different walks of life, to really have meaningful conversations with them. We're really connecting about issues that really matter and that are directly impacting each and every one of us every day. When we talk to each other, we find fairly quickly that we actually do have a lot in common. We're oftentimes not as divided as we think we are if we get into a deeper conversation and, and we choose our subjects wisely as well. We begin to think differently and we look for points of unity versus, you know, going into a conversation where we're just looking to have everybody align with us. I don't believe that civility is the answer to our country's problems. Conversations are helpful, they're not the solution. They can lay the groundwork for systemic change. This is Elliot Powers, and that last voice you heard is Joe Bubman. He's the executive director of Urban Rural Action, the organization I've followed throughout this series. And what Joe just said at the end of that opening montage is worth repeating. Having conversations that are constructive and civil is just the first step in affecting change. But it's an important step. And this probably goes without saying these days, it's a really difficult step. We're a fractured country, both politically and culturally. Finding common ground in conversation isn't easy, especially when you're talking to people who don't share your beliefs and don't live in the type of community you do, and when you're talking about a divisive issue. Studies show that certain types of conversations have become increasingly toxic. Pew Research Center recently found that the vast majority of Americans say political debate has become less respectful and substantive in recent years. And most agree that people who don't share their beliefs don't understand them. That research came out well before the 2020 election, before the false allegations that the election was stolen, and before the attack on the U.S. Capitol. So it's safe to assume that all of those negative feelings described by participants are even stronger now. A lot of people, myself included, are concerned about the state of our country, our politics, our public discourse. If you heard President Biden's inaugural address, you heard him echo those concerns. And I'll credit the president for this. He was self-aware. I know speaking of unity can sound to some like a foolish fantasy these days. I know the forces that divide us are deep and they are real. But staying on brand, Biden stressed the importance of civility in what was arguably the most memorable line of the speech. We must end this uncivil war that pits red against blue, rural versus urban, conservative versus liberal. We can see each other not as adversaries, but as neighbors. We can treat each other with dignity and respect. We can join forces, stop the shouting and lower the temperature. But it's hard to imagine that as a society, we're ready to lower the temperature. It's easy to feel like when it comes to having constructive conversations, we're past the point of no return. I'm certainly not willing to engage with people who are hateful, who believe that political violence is acceptable, or people who have no real interest in finding common ground. 
but I'm willing to engage with pretty much everyone else. In this episode, you'll hear how Urban Rural Action, an organization that is all about engagement, strengthening relationships across divides, and peacebuilding, confronts the reality that a lot of people aren't interested in those aims. You'll hear Urban Rural Action's leaders talk about how to be inclusive, while at the same time being unafraid to denounce anti-democratic forces in the country. And you'll hear a few of them voice a concern that I hear in my circles. The concern that liberals are more invested than conservatives in bridge building and understanding the other side's point of view. But first, you'll hear about ways to have constructive conversations on difficult topics with people who are willing to engage and might not share your views. I'm certainly no expert on this, but I spoke with several people who are, and they shared their approaches to teaching people how to get the most out of these tough conversations. Their approaches are quite similar. They draw upon tried-and-true techniques from conflict mediators. You'll hear all about these approaches and see them in action coming up. But before we get to what works, let's talk about what doesn't work. Whether you're a person who leans into difficult conversations or avoids them, you've probably witnessed what happens when they go off the rails. Innocuous banter between coworkers that starts off like this, I'm like two phone calls away from a sale that'll probably salvage my numbers for the quarter. So that's good. Oh, that's awesome. Can turn on a dime. One person makes a comment. I swear, it's like the protest is outside. I want to defund the police and my livelihood, right? <laughs> Another person voices their displeasure. Did you think, wait, sorry, were you just trying to make a joke there? And an uncomfortable conversation is about yeah, to happen. I'm just trying to make light of what's what's going on. Make sorry, light sorry of it. Sorry if it was offensive. Dying. I mean, definitely offensive. And I should be clear here, this isn't a conversation that happened organically. It's a semi-scripted conversation, with an after-school special for adults vibe to it, that Urban Rural Action recorded to illustrate what can go wrong. And plenty does go wrong. Cops kill white people and black people. I don't think that this conversation is... Like, and you ironically, know I don't think it's that inclusive. By police? You think it's okay at any point for people to be killed by police without cause? Not, not saying that. I'm just saying that, I mean, cops kill white people, black people, people of all races, black men and women. And there are good cops and there are bad cops. And are my okay that police are killing people of all races? Because like, like another level. Just say, don't break the law. <laughs> this conversation, as many do, devolved quickly. Incendiary comments, accusatory questions, raised voices, people talking past each other. Maria, you've been spending way too much time on Twitter. Oh my God. And inevitably, all sides shut down and stop listening. I don't think I have anything to talk to you about anymore. Yeah, whatever. You go on with your white privilege and enjoy it. Um, while it lasts, hopefully, you know, they'll never come for your people as well, but I don't, I don't want to have this conversation anymore. It's worth taking a minute to diagnose some of the problems here. Why conversations like the one we just heard can become unproductive, uncomfortable, and hurtful. Joe's well qualified to talk about this. He has years of national and international experience in conflict management and peacebuilding. So he's used to guiding people through difficult conversations. You know, the pitfall we often make is we think that the purpose of conversations is often to change someone else's mind, to persuade them that they're wrong and we're right, to convince them that they're being unreasonable. And when that's our mindset, we're more likely to 
point out where we think they've screwed up. We're more likely to tell them that they're illogical. We're more likely to argue our case forcefully. And they're likely to do the same. And so we end up both feeling frustrated and no one's learned anything about the other's perspective, as opposed to a mindset where maybe the goal of this is to better understand each other's perspective, why we disagree, to try to learn something about the other's view. And if that's the goal, then we might take a step back, try to ask questions first, seek to understand before seeking to be understood, try to demonstrate we understand their point of view and their reasoning, even if we don't agree. And then share our view in a way that they can understand all the while asking for their reactions and trying to have more of a back and forth rather than a debate. So it's a discussion where you can learn rather than a debate where there's a winner and a loser. So to recap what Joe said, conversations tend to go better to be more constructive when we seek to understand rather than to persuade. And in the second part of his answer, Joe outlined the technique that Urban Rural Action uses to teach people how to have difficult conversations. We'll get back to that later in this episode. But first, I want to bring in another voice. I'll let her introduce herself. Alain Bianduti Hofer, and I'm the manager of Complicating the Narratives at Solutions Journalism Network. Alain is also an expert on having difficult conversations, though her background is quite different than Joe's. She's a former broadcast journalist and documentary filmmaker. In 2019, she began working for the Solutions Journalism Network. It's an organization that trains and connects journalists to cover how people are responding to problems. Here's Alain describing the project she manages. So complicating the narratives is all about teaching journalists new ways, new strategies to help them tell more inclusive, nuanced stories and interviews around divisive issues. And so the idea is that, you know, there's a better way that we can report on conflict. And there's a way that we can do it so we can illuminate these stories and not kind of continue to get people to butt heads. So the obvious difference here is that Alain is focused on training journalists to have constructive conversations with sources. And Joe is largely focused on training people working together on a team to have constructive conversations with each other. But there's a lot of overlap in how they describe the way people should approach these conversations and the common pitfalls. Alain says the goal should be to get to a deeper understanding of the other person's viewpoints and what led them to their perspective. But if the interviewer is overly confrontational and doesn't really listen, then we're not going to be able to get to that point if it's so important for us that we are able to convince this person or tell this person why they are so wrong. That's not the approach that that we want to take. What's a better approach? Alain, Joe, and others have a lot of thoughts on that. And they'll share what they've learned coming up. Coming up on Need to Know, tough and oftentimes rarely asked questions posed and answered by black males for black males. As a TV news magazine host and producer, Alain had a lot of conversations with guests about complex and sometimes polarizing issues. Now she works with journalists on interviewing techniques as part of her Solutions Journalism Network training on how to cover conflict. Doing this work has given her time to reflect on what worked well for her in interviews. Being empathetic and open-minded. Asking questions that get people to open up about themselves. And Alain also thought about what she could have done better. 
now I'm thinking, oh my gosh, you know, why did I not ask this? Why didn't I spend more time on this? How did I miss what the person was saying? Like I realized half the time I wasn't even listening to what they were saying. I was thinking more so about, I have X number of minutes to get this interview done. And so I need to make sure that I hit all my points. And that's how I've done my due diligence. During her workshops with journalists, Alain talks a lot about how to ask good questions, how to listen, and how to tell nuanced stories. That's the core of the complicating the narratives approach. Before Alain tells us more about it, here's some context. The Solutions Journalism Network, several years back, commissioned research about storytelling approaches and published an essay that I highly recommend reading by Amanda Ripley called Complicating the Narratives. Amanda spent months interviewing people who were experts in mediation. She looked closely at the literature on conflict. One of her big takeaways is that it's impossible to feel curious while also feeling threatened. When we feel attacked, we feel the need to defend our side. Complexity collapses, and we're immune to new information. Everyone loses. Amanda cites the work of Columbia University's Difficult Conversations Lab, which studies contentious encounters. The lab found that in conversations that don't go well, people are rigid, defensive, and full of anger and blame. It's like a tug of war. Conversations that go much better tend to be more complex. People experience both positive and negative emotions. They're much more flexible and curious. The lesson for journalists covering polarizing issues is complicate the narrative. Amanda has a number of strategies for doing all this, and I'll focus more on the ones having to do with constructive conversations. Things like asking questions that get to people's motivations, and listening more and better. How do you do all this? Alain teaches a technique from the Center for Understanding Conflict. That technique is called looping. And it's this four-step process. You ask a question and you listen just to understand. And then in a few words, you repeat back to the person, you reflect to them your understanding of what they said. And then you ask them if you got it right. And that's the big thing. Like, how often do we actually check in to say, is my understanding about your experience correct? Is it accurate? And then we wait to see their response. And so the four step in, in this looping technique is we follow up with, tell me more. So that's the broad outline of this looping technique. Now let's get into the specifics, starting with step one, understanding each party. The goal is to build trust with the other person and get them to open up to you. How do we ask questions in a way that causes people to really self-reflect and, and to think through their experiences and to provide information that they wouldn't normally provide? We want to get to the personal, to understand where is this coming from? Solutions Journalism Network published a great list of 22 open-ended questions that helps to accomplish this. If you're looking to amplify contradictions and widen the lens, use questions like, what is dividing us on this issue? How do you decide what information to trust? What do you believe the news isn't covering? Or what do you think that they're getting wrong in terms of people that have your viewpoint? What is oversimplified about this that you think is really important for people to understand? To get at people's motivations and values and beliefs, go with questions like, why is this important to you? Which experiences have shaped your views? How has this conflict affected your life? What do you want the other side to understand about you? What do you want to understand about the other side? And then what would change in your life if someone agreed with your stance? Those are really different types of questions. 
and people are more willing to share that information and to reflect and to process that if they feel as though the person with them is, is listening genuinely. So how do you listen genuinely? Make eye contact, nod your head, give the person your full attention. That's the surface level stuff. People think they know how to listen. But in reality, what happens is, is there's this dialogue that's playing in our head. We have so many distractions or things that are competing for our attention. And so that really does totally get in the way in terms of being present with the person that we're talking with and, and learning how to engage with them in that moment. It's like the most simple thing to say and yet the most difficult thing to do, which is just listen. And don't listen with the script. You're writing the script in your head thinking to yourself, okay, here's how I'm going to respond. Oh, this is good because I have this fact that I can share. And I remember this happened to me. And, you know, building your case and getting ready to boom, shoot it out. That's when it's no longer really a conversation at that point, right? The curiosity is just kind of cut out of the entire thing. That's when people feel very defensive and they feel as though they have to stand their ground and really make their case. And, and there is no listening at that point. Instead, the goal is listening to understand. It's a pretty simple concept. When we talk about understanding where the person is coming from is recognizing that it's not that we're showing agreement. It's that we are just listening to make sure that we are accurately capturing their feelings, their beliefs, and where they're coming from. And then comes the hard part, the part that I kept skipping when I first tried this technique. Sometimes people are like, oh yeah, I got it. And they immediately jump into questions. And I'm like, wait, 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 did you hear, just wait, what did you understand about that? And, and then they're like, wait a minute. Oh, that's, uh, you know, that's where they get stumped. They get stumped on step two, expressing the understanding. This step is explained quite well by Amanda Ripley in a video she recorded about complicating the narratives. Take what you think the most important thing to them was and play it back to them in the most concise, articulate way you can. And what happens are two important things. First, they correct you if you got something a little wrong, which happens more often than most journalists think. And secondly, when you do this, people feel heard. And this magical thing happens with humans. <laughs> like when they feel heard, they will open up to you more. They will even hear information that conflicts with their deeply held beliefs. This playing it back technique is a win-win. You either get positive reinforcement about your ability to listen and understand, or the person corrects and amends what you said and explains their thoughts in a way that further clarifies their thinking. This confirming and correcting thing, it's part of step three. Seek confirmation that the other person feels understood. And then the last step is receiving the confirmation and continuing to learn more. We follow up with, tell me more. Tell me more about that passion that you were feeling and where that came from rather than, okay, well, here's how I feel about this. Or, okay, let me go through my you know, list of questions. It's staying with them. And then to say, now that I understand, that's really interesting. I, I have a different perspective. And would you be open to hearing my perspective and my experiences on this issue? And the person says, no. We don't have a conversation then anymore. They, they're not in a place to be able to discuss whatever it is. If they say, yeah, you know, I'm willing to do that, then you've entered into this exchange in a beneficial way. In Alen's experience, even if her conversation partner isn't well-versed in this looping technique, the person will model it back to her in some form. Because I hear in response, yeah, yeah, so, so what do you think? 
You know, like that's generally like they're, they're at the point where they're like, okay, yeah, I've been spending a lot of time talking about me. And, and so what do you think about all of this? Somewhere between steps two and four are where conversations can easily go off the rails. Instead of listening, checking for understanding, continuing to ask questions, and then sharing your views, if you hear something you strongly disagree with, the natural inclination is to fire back with something like this. I, I need to make sure that I get my point across. Like, this person is not right. They are, they, they are just so backwards. They are so wrong. That's usually the start of trouble. And it's important to look out for what Alain and others referred to as red flag words, words that elicit a strong emotion. So when you hear someone say something like, this person is totally unethical, I'm enraged uh, at what this person did, or I hate that this happened, or I hate this, like certain words like that, especially when they're repeated more than once, that's an indicator that there's something going on. There's an emotion behind those words. What is the emotion? What's the story connected to it? And in what ways can I get to that? Will they, will they open up and share that with me? Alain says when you hear red flag words, sometimes people start to close off. Because they're, they're starting to feel the emotions. The, the walls might start to come up. So it's a matter of when you hear them asking, I heard you mention this word a few times. Can you tell me a little bit about why you use that word and, and the context for that word, um, you know, based on where does that come from? And it's worth repeating, this four-step looping process is about exchanging ideas. This is not about changing minds it's not even about finding common ground. The idea is how do we produce stories? How do we do interviews in a way that we're able to excavate information to have a deeper understanding about other people and their beliefs? Replace the word interviews with dialogue among team members, and what Alain just said speaks directly to the purpose of using this conversation technique in urban-rural action programs. Except urban-rural action doesn't refer to it as looping, but rather... The ABCs for Constructive Conversation Across Difference. That's from a video that Urban Rural Action produced. This ABC approach draws upon the work of the Harvard Negotiation Project and the popular book Getting to Yes. The concept is that negotiations work better when both sides listen, treat each other with respect, and work together to find a resolution. Going back to what Joe said earlier, the idea is to stop thinking of conversations as competitions with an opponent and a clear winner and loser. Instead, the mindset should be, we can both learn something from each other and we can better understand why we disagree. Here's Joe in an Urban Rural Action video explaining what ABC stands for. Is A, ask questions to better understand their view. B, break down our view so they can understand. And C, check our understanding of their perspective. It's three steps rather than the four-step looping process, but it's essentially the same approach. So let's hear it in action. Remember that mock conversation among coworkers that went so poorly a few minutes ago? Well, here's what happened when they tried the ABC approach, starting with A. Hey, Hunter, could you please say more about what you mean by this thing, this whole thing has gone too far? Um, listen, Maria, I'm not... I'm not a racist, so... I didn't like, say that you were. Yeah, Hunter, like, what do you think's gone too far in these past few months? Um, listen, I'm not, I'm not a monster. I understand that Black people have a lot of the deck stacked against them. It just doesn't really add up to me that, like, this one bad cop illustrates the whole landscape. So that's A. Skip ahead in the conversation, and here's C, 
So Hunter, let me just check that I'm understanding what you're trying to say. So you're basically concerned that we're, you know, the, the protests may be painting all cops as bad people. And you're saying that that's not who your brother is. And you're concerned that, you know, he's being judged unfairly. Is that right? Exactly. Yep. Skip ahead again. And here's B. Yeah. And I just want to say that I personally found it offensive when you, you know, just basically made light and made a joke of the protest when what people are doing is standing up for our very lives (sighs) and our, our right to live you know, to live our lives without the risk of being killed by police anytime we step out of the house. So what's your reaction to all of that, Hunter? Well, I appreciate that you both seem to appreciate that I'm worried about everybody's safety. Uh, and the conversation continues without raised voices and accusations. And with both sides better understanding each other, the relationships are intact. That's the best case scenario. But these conversations sometimes aren't as smooth. The Uniting for Action America program has a diverse team focused on race. The team spent a lot of time this fall discussing definitions of race and racism and trying, sometimes unsuccessfully, to find common ground. Here's Jamila White, a locally elected leader from Washington, D.C. In my opinion, we spent a lot of time talking about if racism exists instead of how it exists and how it manifests in our everyday lives and in society and how we're gonna uproot it. And then there was so much personal story giving and storytelling from people of color, um, you know, reopening trauma that may have happened to them to prove that yes, this does exist and it happens to everyday people. One of the main disagreements was whether to accept the tenets of critical race theory. It's the view that race is a socially constructed concept used by white people to maintain their superiority at the expense of people of color. Among other things, it calls for reforming laws and policies as a way to dismantle institutional racism. I asked Michelle Jansen, a member of the race team, to describe the nature of the disagreement she had with Jamila and others about critical race theory. I think it's the idea that this is not absolute truth. My position is just I should be able to question it. And... For the theory, you do have to be able to debate, discuss, you know, bring up concerns. And to me, that's the only way to get to real solutions where you're improving things. So here I am trying to say, well, you know, the rest of society, especially people maybe 30 and up, aren't very exposed to this yet. This is new to them and they're trying to grasp it. And they might say, well, yeah, I can understand we've had racism in the past. And okay, maybe there's leftover bits of trauma worked into our system, but what does that mean exactly? How do you see it? How can you prove it? Michelle lives in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, and works for a news talk radio station. She says she joined the race team because she has a growing concern about how race is being talked about in the country. And she's especially concerned about critical race theory being taught to children in schools. Jamila says she's not used to being in conversation with people who question critical race theory. So the conversations she had over the past few months were challenging, and Jamila thought they were often unproductive. The first couple of discussions, it became, okay, we've already shared enough, and now we're kind of convincing, trying to work to convince. And how do we, you know, reconcile that? We finally reached the point where we could all agree there is a such thing as systemic racism. Now, we didn't necessarily agree 
on which definition it was, but it's almost like everybody breathed a sigh of relief when we thought, well, we can use that word. It's just we have different opinions of what exactly that means. I asked Michelle and Jamila what they thought of the ABC approach to having constructive conversations. It's a great idea and I, I, I like it. I think sometimes it's easy to drift away when you're, especially when you're talking about harder and more controversial subjects as we are, but you try to pull yourself back and try to remember um, to, to listen and to not accuse someone or put your thoughts on them, that kind of thing. The drifting away that Michelle just mentioned, that's pretty easy to do in my experience. We just heard Jamila say that after a while, people were trying to persuade each other, which isn't really part of the ABC approach. Even when they practiced A, asking questions, sometimes people felt like their experiences were being attacked. Jamila says she likes the idea of the ABC approach, but she had a critique. It doesn't really allow for hard discourse or conflict. And sometimes that debate has to happen and because it's natural especially with race and it's such a hard topic, it was still, let's talk about it, but in a nice way, instead of like, let's just be real about this. Jamila felt like she had to tone things down to stay within the framework. She didn't feel like she could confront anyone directly or say that she thought they were wrong. She told me she felt like if she went outside the boundaries, she would, in her words, come off as an angry black woman. Jamila ended up leaving the team because she didn't feel like the experience she was having was meaningful any longer. She wanted to put her energy elsewhere. But she doesn't regret being part of the program, and she describes a conversation she had as genuine. Coming up next, members of the Urban Rural Action Leadership Team talk about and demonstrate the ABC technique. They have a timely conversation about whether the organization needs to change its mission and reposition itself to stay relevant. Does peace building and bridging divides appeal to people anymore? More on that after this. Okay, so it should be working now. Um, there was no fancy, this meeting is being recorded. I always like, it makes you get a lot more formal all of a sudden. I know, I know. <laughs> um, Less than two weeks after the attack on the U.S. Capitol, members of the Urban Rural Action Leadership Team gathered on Zoom for a conversation about the organization's future. Joe and others thought it would be a good occasion for them to process everything that was happening and demonstrate how they can do that with the ABC approach. What you're about to hear is an edited version of that conversation. Nassim Curry, Urban Rural Action's Communications Director, started off by stating his concern that words like unity and civility and healing are less appropriate for the organization to use now, given the state of polarization and the rise of political violence. And then he explained why he has this feeling. Oftentimes I, I sense a kind of asymmetry of curiosity, where it does seem, at least in my world, that liberals tend to be more interested in conservatives than vice versa. And whether that comes, I've sort of seen that anecdotally from friends and just talking with people being like, I, I'm very interested in this and I'm going to read Hillbilly Elegy and I'm going to do all this kind of work um, to learn about the other side, um, but I'm getting nothing back. And also sort of observing a lot of these um, groups that are doing kind of red blue workshops and those kind of healing workshops, things like that, seemingly having a harder time recruiting conservatives than liberals to be involved in groups that are oriented towards that. So Nassim's first concern is that using language like healing and civility reinforces that dynamic. 
Second, I just wonder if it makes your action just kind of sound naive, kind of sound soft, kind of sound not in tune with what's actually going on in the country right now. And we have to sort of acknowledge that people with guns and, and armed and with Confederate flags stormed into the Capitol and kind of looted it. And I'm hearing from folks that are just like, I, I don't want to engage across the aisle. Uh, I just don't want to. That tension exists. And also, we have to. We're all stuck here together. Which brought Nassim to the question he wanted the urban rural action leadership team to grapple with. What is the tone that we should have, if not healing and civility and unity and these kind of nice idealistic words, then what is it? Joe immediately jumped in with the A of the ABC approach, asking a question to better understand someone else's point of view. And is your sense, Nassim, that right now we are using the language of civility, healing, and unity, and that is bothersome to you? Or are you just worried that we might embrace that language and that would be naive and make us seem out of touch with the American sentiment? I think more of the latter, for sure. Uh, We are sort of uniquely positioned to tackle this question because the word action is in our title. It's not urban-rural dialogue. It's not urban-rural healing. I just feel like we have less credibility if we are lumped in with groups that are solely focused on bridging the divide and solely focused on healing and all this kind of thing. Um, Just because, again, I think that the more this division gets wider, uh, the more, like, naive that sounds. Here's Ethan Underhill, Urban Rural Action's New Hampshire State Director, demonstrating the use of C, checking for understanding. So what I heard is sort of like two prongs. One was um, how it makes us as an organization sound. And then the other uh, sort of bullet prong is how we feel as practitioners of the ones reaching across difference. So there's how we want to be perceived in the, you know, sort of marketplace of ideas and the resultant feelings we get after we do it, whether it's good or bad. Lately, it's been bad. We're not getting a lot out of it. Um, There's an asymmetry of curiosity. Quote, unquote, we as the liberals feel like we are not getting what we want out of the experiment. Does that sound right? So yeah, how we feel about ourselves and the optics. I think that's a nice way to frame it. Ethan later talked about how urban rural action can change its messaging to attract people who aren't urban liberals. The more conservative among us might be more responsive to a message that is more or less toughen up and come debate. Of course, that's not, that's not exactly what we want to say, but we only get so far by using words like peace building and communicating across difference. Can I check to make sure that I understand what you're saying, Ethan? Are, yeah, are, you, please. are you saying that the way we might engage conservative community members more effectively in our programs in recruitment is not by talking about communicating across difference or building peace, but maybe a more substantive focus on taking action to address issues? Yeah, and framing it as a challenge. And there was a lot of B, breaking down of views. Here's Kira Hammond, Urban Rural Action's Mid-Atlantic Regional Director. To me, the real thing is it's just too many people to who disagree. If we were talking about a tiny, you know, little percentage on the fringe, that would be one thing. But 40% of the electorate right. thinks that this election was stolen. That's, you cannot 
move forward with that. They have to, there's just no choice. And if we're the only ones reaching out and we shouldn't have to be, so be it. Here's Ethan again talking about a statement Urban Rural Action put out after the attack on the U.S. Capitol. It's never going to feel tougher than it does right now. And it's never been more important to engage in that work. Mm-hmm. And in terms of how we feel ourselves perceived, I was pleasantly surprised that we landed uh, where we did, which is naming that the president's inflammatory rhetoric caused this group of, as we said, violent extremists to, as we said, desecrate the Capitol. I think peace building is a tough horse to ride because you have the responsibility of naming the problem and making sure that you're not losing too many people in the process of naming the problem. Here again is Joe. I think there's a difference between how we see ourselves and how we communicate about what we're doing. And so I very much see ourselves as peace builders. And as Kira has pointed out, and I think we might all agree, describing ourselves as peace builders in the United States is unlikely to resonate with people across ideological spectrum. So I I don't think we should say we're the peace building group, um, at least not with the communities we're trying to engage. Right. What, What is our primary goal? Is it civility, unity, and healing, or is it to advance positive peace in this country, even if we don't sort of describe it always in that set, in that way, and prevent political violence? Right? I think that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to prevent organized violence, and we're trying to advance positive peace, right? Where it's not just, okay, no one's taking up arms, but we have a society where there's justice for all. And my issue with quote unquote, bridge building organizations whose goal is, quote unquote, civility is, okay. well, what is the point of that? If we are having civility in a society around us characterized by violence, injustice, then what are we achieving? And my fear is that if we can't say this group of people did this thing and you're uniting around being able to say, that is wrong, then I'm not sure what you're really able to accomplish if it's just, okay, we're going to hold hands and have a polite conversation. And so I think it's a false assumption that organizations like ours need to be neutral. No, we need to be impartial. We don't favor one group of people over another, but neutral suggests that we can't take a stand when in reality we should take a stand in favor of democracy and against violence. This group has a lot of discussions ahead and a lot of decisions to make. After the conversation was over, I asked people to reflect on the ABC technique they just used. My first question was whether people thought A, B, or C is the most difficult step. Some said it was asking questions or checking for understanding, because both take genuine curiosity and keeping your ego in check. But I was struck by something Maxine Rich said. She's Maryland State Director for Urban Rural Action, and she said B can sometimes be the most difficult. I think what is really important to avoid when you're trying to have a difficult conversation is getting to this space of political correctness where you're just saying, we're all humans, Um, you know, we all have families, and you're not actually getting into any substance, uh, and you're not really sparking a real reflection and a real discussion of what am I showing up to this conversation believing and why do I believe it? I think that 
the ABCs very much do allow you to challenge in a constructive way because of the skill that Maxine said is hardest, which is B, breaking down your view. And Nassim made an important point about how these conversations actually unfold. Despite A, B, and C, it's not a linear process. So it does go back from this idea from, uh, let me check your understanding. But, but me, I need to ask a few more questions and then I can check. And then let me break down mine a little bit more. But all of that is totally dependent on whether you have agreement at the beginning that you will both abide by those ground rules. Nassim brought up a good point. Because in most settings, people you're talking with will have never heard of the ABC approach. And you're probably not going to teach them on the spot. Joe's view is that the ABC technique doesn't only work when the ground rules are explicit. It just works better. And it's definitely true that groups working toward a common goal function better when they're able to have constructive conversations. You know, dialogue alone is not a solution to complex societal problems. But complex societal problems are hard to address without constructive conversation across difference. And so I think it starts with interpersonal communication where we're seeking to understand, not just seeking to be understood. Coming up on the next episode, a group of Pennsylvania residents spend a lot of time talking about school funding inequity and decide to do something about it. Thanks for listening.